If you like the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories podcast, please subscribe on whatever platform you listen on. Feel free to leave a nice review, too, if you like. And don't be shy about letting other people know about the show. All of these things help us out a ton, and we appreciate it very much. Now let's get to some scary stories. If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. (laughs) Sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and enjoy the ride. Jack the Ripper's Diary Jack the Ripper is the famous moniker that was given to the serial killer who terrorized the city of London, England in 1888. The murders attributed to Jack the Ripper involved prostitutes. The killer was known for mutilating his victims in such a way that many assumed the Ripper possessed an extensive understanding of the human anatomy. Jack the Ripper is believed to have been responsible for up to 11 murders. However, most experts conclude the killer to be responsible for five murders, although many feel a strong case can be made for six. The murders all took place August through November of 1888 in the Whitechapel district found in the seedy slums of London's East End. The Ripper was never captured. Next to his final victim, investigators found a diary left by Jack the Ripper. The discovery was never revealed. Until now. The History Before divulging the diary, it's important to go over the most essential details pertaining to the Jack the Ripper case. The following information focuses on the victims, where they were found, the last time they were seen, eyewitness testimony, and clues relating to the vicious murders. The Victims Martha Tabram Body discovered August 7th, 1888 There is debate as to whether or not Martha Tabram is a Jack the Ripper victim. Martha Tabram was found on her back in a pool of blood. She was viciously attacked and stabbed 39 times. The savage stab wounds were found throughout her stomach, chest, throat, and vagina. The closeness of both the site and date of the subsequent Ripper murders led investigating officers at the time to believe that Tabram was a victim of Jack the Ripper. Others disagree, citing the fact that her throat was not sliced, as were the following Ripper victims. A fellow prostitute, Mary Ann Connolly, was the last person to report seeing Martha Tabram that night. Connolly stated that the two had been drinking together. According to Connolly, the prostitute spent time with two soldiers. After sharing several drinks, 
Connolly disclosed that she and the soldier she fancied broke off from the others and stepped into Angel Alley, while Tabram and her soldier companion headed toward George Yard. That was the last known sighting of Martha Tabram. The soldiers in question were never identified. The Victims Mary Nichols Body discovered August 31st, 1888 Mary Nichols is believed by the majority of experts to be the first victim of Jack the Ripper. She was found on a thin road known as Buck's Row. Her throat was sliced so deep that she was nearly decapitated. Her skirt was pulled up practically over her waist. Her vagina had been stabbed multiple times and her stomach had been ripped open. That night, she spent time at the Frying Pan Pub. She then requested a room at Wilmot's lodging house, but was turned away for lack of funds. The last person to report seeing Mary Nichols that fateful night was Emily Holland. Mary was reportedly quite inebriated and Emily Holland offered to pay for her room at Wilmot's. Mary refused, implying that she could earn enough to pay for a room herself. She was never seen alive again. The Victims Annie Chapman Body discovered September 8th, 1888. Annie Chapman's body was found near a doorway on Hanbury Street. Her throat was penetrated by two jagged slices. Her abdomen had been slashed open. Her small intestines had been pulled from her abdomen and placed on her shoulder. Piles of flesh from her stomach were found next to the victim. Portions of her womb, bladder, and vagina were missing. Annie Chapman reportedly had an altercation with another woman in a pub a few days before her final night, which left her battered and bruised. The day before her death, Chapman's friend, Amelia Palmer, said she encountered an extremely ill Annie Chapman. Chapman stated that she was too ill to do anything, but then went on to declare that I must pull myself together and get some money, or I shall have no lodgings. The Victims Elizabeth Long Liz Stride Body Discovered September 30th, 1888 Elizabeth Stride's body was found in Dutfield's yard just off of Burner Street. She is the first of two Jack the Ripper victims on the same night, commonly referred to as the Double Event. Her throat had been deeply sliced, severing her corroded artery and cutting her trachea in two. The body was still warm when discovered. Many believe that the Ripper had been interrupted before having a chance to proceed with mutilating the body. It is speculated that Jack the Ripper was not satisfied with this slaying, thus the killer immediately began to seek out another victim on the very same night. 
A man named Israel Schwartz claims to have seen Elizabeth Stride a mere 30 minutes prior to her body being found. As Israel Schwartz turned onto Burner Street, he says he saw Elizabeth Stride standing near the gateway of Dutfield's yard. He witnessed a short man with a full face and broad shoulders approach the woman. He said the short man had an altercation with the woman and threw her to the ground. While this was happening, Schwartz claims to have seen a taller man standing in the shadows. He reported the man was wearing a dark overcoat and a black hat. Schwartz crossed the street to avoid the fracas, assuming it was a domestic violence situation and did not want to get involved. As he walked away from the altercation, he claims that the taller man stepped out of the shadows and started following him. Scared that he may be in danger, Schwartz ran away. The Victims Catherine Eddowes Body discovered September 30th, 1888 Catherine Eddowes' body was found in Mitre Square, approximately half a mile west of Burner Street. She was found in a puddle of her own blood, with her skirt tossed up over her waist. Her body was brutalized. Her throat was slit, ear to ear. Her stomach had been sliced open and some of her organs stabbed. Her intestines were pulled out and placed on her shoulder. One of her kidneys had been removed along with her uterus. Her face had been butchered. Her nose had been cut off. There were slash marks across her cheeks and eyes. Only 15 minutes before the body was found, Three men claimed to have seen Catherine Eddowes walking with a man near Mitre Square. Many investigators were puzzled as to how Jack the Ripper could commit such an atrocity and depart Mitre Square without being spotted. Surely the killer would be covered in blood and thus would stand out. A bloody apron was found along Golston Street later that night. At a brisk pace, Golston Street is approximately 10 minutes from the murder site. The apron is believed to have belonged to Catherine Eddowes, and apparently the Ripper used it to wipe off his knife. There was graffito discovered near the apron that read, The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Some believe the graffito to be a message left by Jack the Ripper. The Victims Mary Jane Kelly Body Discovered November 9th, 1888 Jack the Ripper's final victim was found mutilated in a room at 13 Miller's Court off Dorset Street. Her throat was sliced to her vertebrae her face was chopped up beyond recognition, with ears, nose, and all facial features having been removed. She had been eviscerated. Her abdomen was emptied of its organs. Her uterus, kidneys, and breasts had been removed, 
and placed by her mangled head. Her thighs were stripped to the bone. Piles of the flesh were stacked on the floor and bedside table. Her heart was missing. Inspector Walter Drew was quoted as saying the following upon reflecting on what he witnessed that day. As my thoughts go back to Miller's Court and what happened there, the old nausea, indignation, and horror overwhelm me still. My mental picture of it remains as shockingly clear as though it were but yesterday. No savage could have been more barbaric. No wild animal could have done anything so horrifying. The Letters Dear Boss An intriguing aspect of the Jack the Ripper case was a series of taunting notes received from a person announcing themselves as Jack the Ripper. The Dear Boss letter was received by the Central News Agency on September 27th. They immediately forwarded the letter to Scotland Yard. Early in the Jack the Ripper investigation, the police had a primary suspect named John Pizer, also known as Leather Apron. Pizer was arrested but subsequently released due to having alibis on the nights of the murders. It was also speculated that due to his apparent knowledge of human anatomy, Jack the Ripper may be a doctor. Leather Apron and the Doctor Theory are both referenced in the Dear Boss letter. The letter reads as follows. Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about Leather Apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores and shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the ladies' ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away, if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me given the trade name. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands, curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. The Letters Saucy Jack Another letter that investigators had taken notice of was a postcard referred to as Saucy Jack. The letter references the double event. The postcard reads 
as follows. I was not cotting, dear old boss, when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jack's work tomorrow. Double event this time. Number one squealed a bit. Couldn't finish straight off. Had no time to get ears off for police. Thanks for keeping last letter back till I got to work again. Jack the Ripper. The Letters from Hell. George Lusk and several other businessmen in the region created the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, of which George Lusk was elected chairman. Their hope was to assist the police with apprehending Jack the Ripper. The From Hell letter was sent to George Lusk. The letter was accompanied by a box that housed half of a preserved human kidney. Examiners concluded that the kidney was indeed that of a human. The letter reads as follows. From Hell, Mr. Lusk, sorry. I send you half the kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for you. The other piece I fried and ate. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Signed, Catch Me When You Can, Mr. Lusk. The Diary When investigators discovered the body of Jack the Ripper's final victim, Mary Jane Kelly, in a room at 13 Miller's Court, it was not only her organs and flesh that they found laid out next to the body. They also found a small diary. The diary was written in Mary Jane Kelly's blood. The diary reads as follows. Hello, lads. Consider yourselves conquered, for I shall not be resuming my artistry within your lovely district of Whitechapel. The kitchen is getting too hot. I'll be taking my talents elsewhere now. This was my final performance. Did you enjoy? I couldn't leave you all the spoils, so I took her heart for my own. I don't want to leave you with the impression that I have no gentlemanly qualities. Thus I'll shine a bright light on the case for all of you who seem to be feeling around in the dark. This is not my first go-around. I've been doing this for quite some time. Almost been nabbed a time or two. But I'm wiser about my recreation than I previously was. Attention and my pastime don't mix, so I never stay in one region for long. Whitechapel has been such a good time. I've stayed here much longer than is typical for me. Couldn't help myself with all the dregs, whores, and dark places to do my deeds. I scout locations before I indulge. Not sensible to begin the good fun blind. I also follow my prey for hours before I make my move. Don't like no surprises in my line of work. The first in Whitechapel was August 7th, 1888. Seems some of you weren't sure if this was one of mine. I can confirm. Wasn't planning on ripping this night. 
I was still getting a lay of the land, but the whore caught my eye. Saw the girl with another whore. They were walking with two soldiers. First one split off. She led her soldier into Angel Alley. I let them go and followed the others. She and her soldier boy turned down George Yard. I hid in the shadows and watched as the filthy whore performed orally on the soldier. After the soldier left, the whore stayed in the shadows too long. Too perfect for me to pass up. Didn't have me proper tools this night. Had to use the trusty pocket knife. Not as quick or handy, but it did the job good. Not sharp enough to slice, but good for many stabs as you saw. August 31st, 1888 was my next performance. A night of two substantial fires in town, of which I assure you I had no part in. So many went off to enjoy the display that the streets were especially quiet. I followed this one for much of the night. She spent a good amount of time at the frying pan pub, finishing off more than a few. Good and drunk makes my job easier. I followed her waiting for an opening, but had no luck, and she found success in making it to lodging. Was about to turn my attention elsewhere until she was turned away for not having the fourpence necessary for a bed. I followed in the darkness, watched her chat with a girl on Brick Lane who offered to pay for her lodging, but lucky for me, she refused. Stubborn to pay her own way, I suppose. When she was finally alone, I approached. She was happy to see me, thinking I'd pay for the services she offered. She led me to Buck's Row, quiet and dark. My blade was fast. She hadn't time to make a peep. Had enough time to rip this one open. Heard some stirring at the end of the throughway, or I'd have done more. Couldn't wait long to do it again. September 8th was the next date. This one was a sickly bird. She was busy that night earning a pretty penny. She was a talkative one. Spoke of her talent being crocheting. Asked me if I had any talents. I told her she was about to experience mine. She got a nice chuckle out of that, assuming I was speaking of giving her a good stitch. She went on to tell me about the physical quarrel she had with a fellow lady at her lodging house, pointing out the bruises on her face from the altercation. I told her that was nothing compared to what I was about to do. By her expression, she wasn't sure if I was serious or not. Immaterial as I shut her up well and good with a flash of my blade. We were under the shroud of darkness from a doorway. Streets were quiet at the time of night. I had time to do my good work. Even kept a few parts for myself. Tricky night was September 30th. You like to call it the double event. And a double event it surely was. The first girl was a mistake. Should have let her go and moved on to another. I had staked her out and decided to make my move once she took position near the gateway of Dutfield's yard. 
It was then that the two men rounded the corner of Burner Street. I stepped back into the shadows. The first man was short and plump. He appeared to be a drunkard and propositioned the whore. I couldn't make out what she said that made him angry, but he grabbed her and threw her to the ground. The second man was heavily bearded. He observed the quarrel for a moment and then walked away. I decided to do the same and followed behind the bearded man. I'd have to find a new whore to do my dirty work on. When I heard the woman yell out an obscenity, I turned around. The plump man slurred out something derogatory and left. Suddenly, the street was quiet again, so I refocused on the original mark. I approached her and asked if she was injured. She insisted that she was fine. I asked her if she felt well enough to service me. She was more than willing and led me into Dutfield's yard, which was nearly pitch black. I had just sliced through the soft flesh of her throat when I heard the clomping steps of a horse and carriage. I stood silently waiting for the carriage to pass, but was unlucky as it turned toward me. The horse spooked and refused to approach in my direction. The driver jumped from the carriage and struck a match as he investigated the source of the horse's apprehension. I lay the whore on the ground and quietly stepped back into the cover of darkness, hoping he wouldn't notice the body. The match lit up the area more than I anticipated. The whore's body was clear to see. If the man were to start screaming bloody murder, a mob would come running and I'd have to try my best to hack my way through them. The odds wouldn't be in my favor. I was lucky when he rushed into a nearby club for assistance. It gave me just enough time to make my escape. I couldn't leave the night at that now, could I? Of course not. Another whore would be on the menu tonight. I ventured no more than a half mile away, near Mitre Square, and found another whore ripe for the taking. I propositioned her and we began walking to a secluded area. I almost called off the endeavor when three men passed by. They looked our way, but I had my head down so as not to be seen well. A whore walking with a man is nothing new in these parts, so I doubt they gave us much thought. Once alone, I introduced the whore to my knife. It was quiet. There was a good echo in that area for me to hear others coming from a distance. I didn't feel rushed and took the time to slice her up nice-like. It was a good while before a man stumbled upon her remains. I was watching from a distance, you see. Not often I get to see reactions to my handiwork. The first man panicked and rushed to Curly and Tongue's warehouse and returned with a night watchman. I chuckled aloud as the watchman practically lost his breath blowing on his whistle. Much speculation as to how I could slay the whore without her letting out a squeal. It's rather simple. I'm good with my blade. As for how I managed to escape Mitre Square without being seen, well, 
there are plenty of dark passages to hide in until there is a clear moment. And who says I was on the street the entire time? Many dwellings for me to find my way into. As for the bloody apron found on Golston Street, why yes, I did wipe my blade on that apron, but I left it next to the body. I can only surmise that a dog picked it up and carried it away, finally dropping it at the location it was found. As for the graffito on the wall, not my doing. And let me lay to rest the conjecture pertaining to whether or not I am blood-covered when I finish my task. I'm well-versed in which way to expect the blood to spurt. And in case one was unaware, blood wipes off skin rather easily. But still, it can be a messy business. Removing my overcoat before beginning the procedure and putting it on afterward masks the majority of spatter. I also wear dark clothing. Not only does this assist me in hiding within the shadows, but blood doesn't show up as well on black. Also, those letters you received were amusing, but they were not written by me. Or were they? I suppose you'll never know for sure. And this all leads us to this fateful night, November 9th. A nice night for a butchering. You may be wondering why no fancy work from your favorite ripper in October. I was away preparing my journey for my next location. Can't stay in Whitechapel any longer and still have my fun. Did you miss me? Wanted to leave you something nice to remember me by. Catch me when you can. Ha <laughs> ha. Jack the Ripper The diary ends at that point. Investigators found themselves in a precarious position. They were already under an enormous amount of pressure to catch the killer and bring him to justice, and the public was becoming restless. If they made Jack the Ripper's diary public, it would only cause further embarrassment. As it was, the media was constantly bombarding them with intense criticism, mocking them with satirical cartoons and scornful articles. It was officially decided that making Jack the Ripper's diary public would only open them up to more ridicule. They felt the shrewder decision would be to keep the diary hushed. If Jack the Ripper remained true to his word, the killings would stop Things would settle down, and hopefully this would eventually blow over. In the aftermath of the murders, Whitechapel became a pressure cooker of suspicion, paranoia, and fear waiting to explode, but slowly simmered as Jack the Ripper seemed to have kept his word. A heavy police presence was intentionally maintained in Whitechapel for the next year to help calm the public. There were other murders in the area that the press was eager to pin on Jack the Ripper, but none of the murders matched the mutilating moniker of the brutal Whitechapel murderer and were officially dismissed as being unrelated. Investigators officially closed the Jack the Ripper file 
1892. Clown House I'm a single male and started looking for a house to buy a couple of months ago. The market was insanely competitive. Every time I found a house I liked, somebody else's offer had already been accepted before I even had a chance to look at the place. It was crazy. So when an attractive two-story craftsman-style house in a nice neighborhood within my price range was listed, I got aggressive. I had never owned a house before and based off of the photos, this was the place. It was everything I had been hoping for. If I were able to get this one, I would look back and be happy that all the previous houses I was interested in didn't work out for me. I thoroughly scanned through all of the available pictures of the house, of which there were many. I actually knew a few people who lived in the area, so I knew the neighborhood was to my liking. So taking all things into consideration, I was confident enough to make an offer, sight unseen. I even waived all contingencies. On top of that, I made it a cash offer. I was both joyous and nervous when my offer was accepted and the seller was hot to close. The closing was scheduled immediately, and I was officially the owner of the house before I ever even stepped foot in it. It was risky, but I rolled the dice. After the closing, I finally walked through the house, gave it an exhaustive looking over, and breathed a huge sigh of relief. Everything looked up to snuff. The lone spot I had yet to check out was the attic. It was the only portion of the house that didn't have any pictures in the listing. The attic was in the upstairs hallway. It was a pull-down attic where one pulls a string and a ladder unfolds from the ceiling. The ladder came down nice and easy, and it was very sturdy as I climbed up. I stuck my head through the opening, but it was so dark up there that I couldn't see much. Fortunately, I could see a string light bulb overhead. I hoisted myself up into the attic, pulled the string, and the attic was illuminated. I must have jumped three feet in the air and let out a scream like a little girl when I spotted four figures standing against the wall. It took me a good 15 seconds to get my wits about me and ascertain what I was looking at. Mannequins. Four life-sized mannequins, and these weren't just your run-of-the-mill average mannequins. They were clown mannequins. And these weren't cheap. These were well-designed and detailed. The first clown looked happy with its goofy smile, fiery red hair, bulbous nose, and oversized shoes. The next clown had short blue hair, it was white-faced with blue stars surrounding both eyes. Its blue mouth curled into a fun smile. 
The third clown had yellow hair and a peach-colored face with white circles around his eyes and smiling mouth. All three of them made a nice, jolly trio. The final clown was much different than the other three. First of all, he was set apart from the others as if he weren't part of their group. He was a sad hobo clown with a crumpled tramp hat, and a large frown wasn't the only thing he was holding. In his hand was a massive butcher knife. This would have freaked most people out. It didn't bother me though. I figured it was just some kind of Halloween decoration the previous owner left behind, and quite frankly, I was seeing nothing other than dollar signs. I figured I could sell them for at least a hundred bucks each. I left the attic and was feeling good about the house. I decided to go to a local restaurant to get a bite to eat. My plan was to spend the night in the house just to get a feel for it. I didn't have any furniture to move in yet, but had an air mattress in my car. After a nice dinner, I returned to my new home, blew up my air mattress, and laid myself down and fell fast asleep. I was awakened in the middle of the night by a fairly loud thud. It came from the attic. I figured one of the clown mannequins fell over, but wanted to confirm, so I pulled down the ladder stairs and climbed into the attic. What I saw was a bit perplexing. The blue-haired clown's head was lying on the floor in front of its body. I stepped deeper into the attic, stooped down next to the blue-haired clown's head, and took a closer look. It appeared that the head had been violently hacked off. My assumption was the head was already like that and had just been balanced in place on the body. Being that it wasn't properly affixed, it eventually succumbed to gravity and rolled off. I didn't think much of it and went back to bed. When I woke up the next morning, I washed my face, gave myself a quick five-finger combing of my hair, and started for the front door. That's when I noticed the slow, rhythmic creaking sound coming from above me. Again, I pulled the attic ladder down and climbed up into the attic. I gasped. The fiery, red-haired, happy clown had a noose wrapped around its neck and was swaying back and forth as it hung from a rafter. The end of the rope was being firmly held in the hobo clown's hands. There was no reasonable explanation for this other than someone had broken into my new house and was messing with me. I was furious. The very first night in my new house and I had an intruder. I know how to handle myself and had every intention of roughing up the intruder once I got my hands on them. Nobody was going to come into my new house, mess with me, and get away with it. I hurried down the attic ladder and did a quick search of the house, but I found no sign of anyone else having been there. I was still steaming and tried to call the police to report this, but my cell phone wasn't getting a signal, so I did the next best thing. I sped to the police station and reported this in person. The police took this seriously and wanted to take a look through the house for themselves, so they followed me back. When we pulled up into the driveway, my neighbor was out in his front yard watering his lawn. 
The police quickly questioned him to see if he saw or heard anything unusual. The neighbor shrugged and said he hadn't heard anything at all other than a chainsaw revving from inside my house. They asked him how long it had been since he heard the chainsaw. He replied, About a minute ago. A minute ago? The trespasser had to be back in the house. My blood was boiling. I wanted to get my hands on whoever the hell was messing with my new home. I took off like a flash into the house. I could hear the police running behind me yelling for me to stop and to wait for them, but I was like a man possessed and wanted to find this bastard. As I entered the house, I could hear the low hum of a running chainsaw. It was coming from the attic. I flew up that ladder like a maniac, but stopped in my tracks at the sight I saw before me. The peach-faced, yellow-haired, happy clown was lying in pieces on the floor. The hobo clown was standing over him and was holding a chainsaw. The hobo clown's head was turned and he was staring directly at me. For a split second, I didn't even recognize him due to the fact that his trademark frown was no longer a part of his facial features. He was smiling. Rest Stop When I was 25 years old, I was in a long-distance relationship with a man who lived in Orlando, Florida. I lived in Cincinnati. Each month, one of us flew to the other city to spend at least a weekend together. This particular time, I was the one traveling, but instead of flying, I decided to drive all by myself, and I left fairly late at night. The majority of the roads were quiet, with the exception of the occasional trucker. At one point, I stopped and got some fast food, and something about the meal did not agree with my stomach. Within 30 minutes of eating, my stomach was churning, grumbling, and I was getting occasional sharp pains in my lower abdomen. I needed to find a bathroom, and quick. I was relieved when I saw a sign for a rest stop up ahead. I absolutely hate stopping at rest stops and almost never do, but I had to go to the bathroom so bad that if I didn't make an exception, I was going to have an accident. I pulled into the empty rest stop parking lot. The building was old and run down. I could see that it was dimly lit inside. It had an extremely gloomy and seedy feel to it. I seriously wish there were more people around. Honestly, had this not been an emergency, I would not have gotten out of my car. But my stomach gave me no choice. I rushed into the building and was met by the overwhelming stench of mildew. I hurried to the ladies' room, which was home to five stalls, a garbage can that looked like it hadn't been changed in weeks, and a filthy sink. To top it all off, the overhead fluorescent lights were flickering on and off. It was dirty and creepy. At this point, none of that mattered. I needed a toilet now. 
I sprinted to the last stall and made it just in time. After several minutes, just after I let out a breath of relief, I heard the ladies' room door squeak open and could hear heavy footsteps enter. I listened as one of the stalls further down rattled open and then heard the distinct sound of urine hitting the porcelain. This wasn't unexpected, I mean, this was a bathroom. What was startling was when the person cleared their throat in an exceptionally deep manner. It was a man. I was scared. I just had a creepy feeling about this whole thing. I was hoping that this was just an innocent man who mistakenly thought this was the men's room. I held my breath hoping he didn't realize I was in there. Then he spoke in a deep, hoarse voice. Little pig, little pig, let me come in. That was followed by the squeak of him pushing one of the other stall doors open, followed by the next one, and the next one until I could see him moving outside the stall I was in. The stall door began to rattle as he tried to pull it open. I'm in here, I yelled, but it didn't deter him. He started pulling harder and then started pounding on the door. I started screaming as he began kicking the door. That flimsy door fastener wasn't going to hold up much longer. Then I heard the creak of the ladies' room door opening, followed by a woman saying, Hey, what are you doing in here? This is the ladies' room. I could hear the man run out of the bathroom. My heart was beating a mile a minute. I took several deep breaths to calm myself and exited the stall. The woman who had entered the bathroom could see the fear on my face and asked if I knew that guy. I told her I had no idea who that was and explained that he was trying to get into my stall. The woman was very sympathetic and walked me out to the restroom lobby where her boyfriend was waiting for her. He said that the guy ran past him and out into the parking lot. The couple walked me to my vehicle. They even checked inside my car to make sure that guy didn't try to hide in there. Fortunately, there was no sign of him. I didn't stop again until I reached Orlando. Cab Ride I'm a businesswoman and my job requires me to travel often. I called for a cab to pick me up outside my house and take me to the airport. I was still packing when I heard the cab honking its horn. I checked my watch. They were about 15 minutes early, but better early than late. I finished packing and stepped out to the cab. My baggage was light, so I brought it with me into the back of the cab and the cab driver sped off. I am the type of person who likes to kill time in cabs by striking up a conversation with the driver. I broke the ice by saying, Nice night, huh? The cab driver didn't respond. He didn't even look in the rearview mirror to acknowledge I said anything. I thought maybe he was hard of hearing, so I asked him the same question again, only louder. Still, no response. This was odd. There was no way he didn't hear me. 
Could he really be that rude as to simply ignore me? I was about to ask him if he could hear me okay when my phone dinged, indicating that I had a text message. It was from the cab company. The message read, I'm outside waiting for you. My heart stopped. I checked the time on the text and it was mere seconds ago. At first I thought maybe the cab company screwed up and sent two cabs to the same location, so I leaned forward and inquired with the driver. Uh, I just got a text message from the cab company saying that they were waiting for me outside my house. I was waiting for an explanation from the driver. Instead, he ignored me and pounded on the accelerator. I started yelling for him to slow down and he began laughing. It was a shallow, maniacal laugh. <laughs> I started screaming, but that only resulted in him laughing harder. <laughs> I had to get out of this cab. I reached for the door handle, but heard the mechanical clang of the doors being locked. I started pounding on the window and screaming like a madwoman as the cab continued to pick up speed and fly through intersections with reckless abandon. As he ran through a red light, I spotted a police car near the intersection. I prayed that they saw us and let out a breath of relief when I saw the police car activate its flashing lights and pull behind the cab. As the cab driver gawked at the police car in the rearview mirror, he let loose with an endless tapestry of expletives. Within a few seconds, the cab came to a skidding halt against the sidewalk, knocking over several garbage cans in the process. The driver then bolted from the cab and ran off into the night. The police gave chase, but weren't able to catch him. Later, after doing a thorough inspection of the cab, investigators found DNA evidence of four missing women. I was almost the fifth. In 1967, I worked for the sheriff's department in a very small town with the population of approximately 1,000 people. The sheriff's department was very much like that of Mayberry in the Andy Griffith show. There was a sheriff and me, the deputy. That was it. And we were true peace officers. We weren't law enforcers who were there to collect commerce for the town. We were there to do nothing more than to help keep the peace. And that we did. It was an extremely quiet Sunday afternoon. Church service had long since ended and most of the churchgoers had already had lunch and went back home. Sunday afternoons were the quietest days in our town. All of the stores in downtown were closed and the local diners shut down shop early at 3 o'clock. The sheriff was off that day and I was manning the station by myself. Of course, it being Sunday, there was nothing for me to do, so I was leaning back in my chair with my feet propped up on my desk. I was deeply engrossed in a detective novel when the door to the sheriff's office flung open and a young boy rushed in. 
I guessed the boy to be no more than ten years old. He was terrified about something. He collapsed into my arms and was breathing so rapidly that he was near hyperventilation. He kept repeating the same words over and over. They're gone. They're all gone. The boy wasn't going to be helpful in relaying whatever information he had until he calmed down, so I sat him down in a chair and instructed him to take several long, deep breaths. I then gave him a glass of water. I assured him that he was going to be okay and that I wouldn't let anything happen to him. After a few minutes, he had settled down enough to speak somewhat coherently. It turns out the boy was from the nearby town of Stark. It was a tiny town with a population of about 200. The town itself didn't consist of much. There was a little general store, a small diner, and a town hall. Stark was a farming community, so the neighboring houses were all spread far apart outside of the town. They're gone. They're all gone. Who's gone? The entire town. I asked him if he knew where they went. He just said, They took everyone. Who took everyone? The boy looked up at me with fear-filled eyes and spoke in a hushed tone. Them. Since the diner was still open, I brought the boy there and bought him some lunch. I told Mary Lou, who was running the diner that day, to watch the kid until I got back. I was going to check out the town of Stark to see what was going on. Stark was about 15 miles away. When I pulled into the town, I saw several cars parked in spaces near the buildings that made up the township. So clearly, there were many people there on this day. When I stepped outside of my vehicle, I immediately noticed how quiet everything was. I could hear the gentle breeze of the day and nothing more. Not a peep. If as many people were here as the vehicles indicated, I would expect to see a few on the sidewalks and to hear some chatter coming from at least one of the buildings. There was nothing but silence, so I inspected further. My first stop was Town Hall. Their Town Hall was not much more than an office with a large meeting room. I stepped into the building. I noticed a flyer on the wall that indicated a scheduled meeting for that day. According to the flyer, it seemed that the farmers were going to be discussing the rumbling underground that they had all been experiencing lately. That piqued my curiosity, so I stepped into the meeting room. It appeared that they had indeed gotten together that day to discuss something. There was an arrangement of chairs all set up, but the room was in disarray. There were chairs and papers thrown all about the room. But the oddest thing was the hole. There was a gigantic sinkhole in the middle of the room. I stood over it and looked down. It was pitch black. I shined the beam of my flashlight down, but the light was swallowed up by the darkness. I stepped out of the town hall and entered the general store next door. There was no sign of life and the place was a mess. Food, feed bags, and other items within the store were thrown about as if there were some kind of struggle or riot. And there was another hole. It was in the center of the store. The tiled floor had been churned up and there was a mound of dirt surrounding the hole. Again, I looked down into it. 
It was deep and dark. I could not see anything. I hurried out of the general store and ran across the street to the diner. People had been there eating. The booth still had plates with food on them. The counter had multiple cups of coffee, still full. The grill in back was hot, with burnt food sizzling on it. But no people. Everyone had vanished, and obviously they all left very abruptly. I walked behind the counter and stepped through the swinging doors in the back kitchen area. There was another hole in the floor. It was like the other two, as if something had burrowed up from under the ground and emerged into the diner. Again, I looked down into the hole. Unlike the others, this hole didn't drop straight down. This one was more of an incline that gradually went down into the earth. With my flashlight in one hand and my revolver in the other, I stepped down into the hole and started walking deep down into the ground. The beam from my flashlight did nothing to help me see in front of me. It was simply too dark. But when I shone the light on the walls, I could make out gargantuan claw marks. It didn't look smooth or rhythmic like I would have expected if a machine had tunneled this hole. These marks were unique and chaotic. I continued walking for what seemed like hours, but in reality it was likely just a few minutes, until I stepped into a room. I say room, but it was more like an enormous cavern. The ceilings had to be more than a hundred feet tall, and I could see. I could see in this room due to the light spilling in from the two holes above me. The holes from the town hall and general store buildings. And then I spotted the town folk. They were all lying in a pile. They had clearly been dropped down into the cavern from the holes above. Their bodies were distorted and misshapen from the fall, and then ravaged and torn apart by... them. My mind began to wonder what kind of monster could have done this, but my imagination wasn't necessary, as I saw one of them step out from the shadows. The beast picked up one of the townfolk and began chewing on them like one might expect to see a dog gobbling up a piece of meat. The creatures were unlike anything I had ever seen. They were massive. They had to be twelve feet tall. Their skin was smooth and yellow, and they were rippling with muscles upon muscles. There was no fat on these creatures. They looked like a mass of moving muscles. Their legs were short compared to the trunk of their bodies, and their hands were titanic. They were like bulldozer hands with long, thick talons. Their necks were minimal as they disappeared into their broad shoulders and their heads were round and bald. The jaws on these creatures were like dump trucks with jagged, blood-stained teeth. Their eyes were hauntingly sinister, beady, and burning bright red. I watched on in horror as countless other creatures stepped forward out of the darkness and began feeding on the town people, ripping them apart and some even swallowing them whole. 
They hadn't seen me, or I too would be inside their gullet, so I remained still, hoping they would go away and allow me an easy escape. I had to hold back my vomit multiple times as I continued to watch them feast. But finally, they stopped, and to my dismay, began scaling the walls and using their claws to pull dirt back into the room. It took me a moment to realize that they were in the process of plugging the holes they had created, and they were moving quickly. The town hall hole was filled in no time, and they were halfway finished with filling the general store hole when I realized I had to make my move now, or I would be trapped down here with... them. I turned and ran faster than I ever had in my life, and was able to emerge from the hole to get back into the diner. I collapsed in the corner of the room and caught my breath. Within a few seconds, I could see the hole being filled from underneath. It took all of two minutes for that entire tunnel to be filled. It was an odd sight, to be sure. The tile of the floor was pushed to the sides to reveal an innocent dirt spot under the flooring. No one would have ever guessed that these were once holes that led to the guts of the earth below. I never told anybody. What good would it have done? The people of Stark were all dead, and who in their right mind would have believed me? The creatures had filled in the hole, so I had no proof. I was aware of how preposterous the whole story sounded. Everyone would have thought I had lost my mind. I probably would have been thrown in the loony bin. So, all these years, I kept this to myself. But here I am now, a frail old man who has withered away to nothing more than a skeleton wrapped in wrinkled flesh. I'm not much longer for this world, and this was not a tale I wanted to take with me to the grave. The Red Light District I used to be a homicide detective, but I got tired of all the politics and red tape that went with that job, so I quit and have been making a nice living as a private detective for many years. I was recently hired by a woman to follow her husband. She suspected that he was being unfaithful and wanted proof of his infidelity. I followed the mark to the red light district of the city, and within minutes a prostitute was leaning into his window. They talked for a minute or so, and then she got into his vehicle. It wasn't enough for me just to witness him pick up a hooker. I was getting paid extra to catch him in the act and obtain visual proof. She wanted this done for divorce purposes. The spouse was smart and wanted there to be no doubt about his adulterous act before she took the evidence to her divorce attorney. I followed them to a seedy hotel that charges by the hour. I slipped the desk clerk 20 bucks for their room number and a spare key. I stood outside their door and waited for several minutes until I began to hear moans of pleasure. At that point, I unlocked the door slowly pushed it open, 
and began filming with my camera phone. The prostitute was riding this mark like a pony. They didn't even hear me open the door. I had to clear my throat loudly to get the mark to rise up enough so that I could get a nice clear shot of his face. Say cheese! He fumbled around trying to get the hooker off him while simultaneously feeling around for his pants. I chuckled as I trotted through the hall, down the stairs, and out the hotel door. Easy night of work. As I was heading back to my car, I passed an alleyway. It was a dark alley only lit by moonlight, a perfect spot for someone to park with a prostitute for a simple BJ. As I passed by, the clickety-clack of high-heeled shoes got my attention enough for me to take a gander down the alleyway. There was a car parked about midway down the alley. The clickety-clack was coming from the prostitute who was rounding the front of the vehicle, carrying something large over her shoulder. I couldn't make her out well, just a poofy-haired silhouette of a lean woman. In addition to the distinct clickety-clack of her heels, I could hear the jingling of what was likely a lot of jewelry. I instinctively took cover in the shadows so as not to be seen and watched as she carried the large load toward a dumpster a few feet from the car. Whatever it was that she was carrying must have been light because she tossed it into the dumpster with ease. I then watched on as she walked back to the car and opened the driver's side door. She gave a motion as though she were going to get in, but then froze and her head jetted around in my direction. I ducked around the corner but wasn't sure if I was spotted or not. I kept my position until I heard the car's engine rev to life. I then peered around the corner and watched as the car drove down the alley and disappeared into the night. I'm curious by nature, I guess that's one of the reasons I'm a good detective. I was dying to know what she tossed in that dumpster. Since the coast was clear, I pulled out a pen light to help guide my way down the dark alley to the dumpster. When I got there, I opened the plastic lid and shined my flashlight inside. I've seen a lot of dead bodies in my day, so I wasn't shocked or disgusted by the dead body lying in the dumpster amidst all kinds of other garbage. The body was that of a man in his mid to late 40s, average size, his skin was an extreme shade of pale blue and was pruned. Now, I could call this into the detectives at Homicide, but where was the fun in that? I didn't have any other PI jobs lined up for the next few days, so I took it upon myself to look into this a little more before I reported anything. When I got back home, I was able to log into the Homicide Records website. Being that I'm no longer employed by the department, my old credentials no longer work to get me in, but I know a few backdoor ways to get inside the system. After a couple hours of digging around, I found a trend. The body I saw wasn't the only body that had turned up like this. All around the country, there were average Joes turning up dead in dumpsters. None were connected, most were working men, some had families, others did not, but they all apparently died from a drug overdose, usually heroin. 
The cities these bodies were being found in were scattered all over the country. Chicago, LA, New York, Houston, San Francisco, Seattle, Miami, New Orleans, and the list went on and on. It was always a populated city in which the bodies were found, which I don't think was a coincidence. Most big cities have a fair share of drug overdose cases, thus the book on most would be shut quickly. The fact that this was happening in so many random big cities, and were all drug overdoses, would keep people from suspecting a serial killer. Honestly, I probably wouldn't have suspected it either had I not seen someone dump the body. And there was one other unusual thing about these deaths. The deceased men's cars were usually found in a random parking lot a few blocks from where the body was dumped. If this were a serial killer's work, that would make sense. They dump the body in the dumpster. It probably won't be found for a little while. Some might never be found. And separating them from their vehicle delays any investigation. Most of those cars are just going to be towed after a week or more. Nobody is going to start looking into that. Not until someone reports the person missing. So we had a sneaky killer out there who didn't really care too much about their victims being found, but always had a knack for keeping it from looking like a homicide. Thus, no one is making much of a fuss over it. Who was that mysterious prostitute that I witnessed toss a dead body into a dumpster like a sack of rolled up paper? I had to know. The next few nights, I did some snooping around the red light district, primarily checking out darkened alleys. I found a lot of them were occupied with vehicles, but there was just regular prostitute business going on. Now, if I were some kind of peeping Tom pervert, I may have called the first two nights of searching a success, but I am no sicko, so I considered them non-productive. It was the third night that was the charm. I had parked near the center of the red light district and found a street that housed three different dark alleys for me to check on. I thought it best to sleuth around on foot. I was dressed in black so I could blend in with the shadows and not be easily spotted. The first alley was occupied with three cars and all appeared to be normal for the red light district. The second alley had one car in it. It was quiet, and for a moment I thought it might be something of interest, but then I heard an orgasmic moan and moved on toward the third alley. As I neared the final alley's entrance, I heard the familiar clickety-clack of high heels and the subtle jingle of jewelry. I stealthily peeked my head around the corner and spied into the alley. Once again, I watched as the poofy-haired silhouette of a woman hurled a dead body into the dumpster. She then nonchalantly strolled back to the car, got in, and drove down the alley. I waited until the car turned the corner and hightailed it as fast as I could down the alley. When I emerged out the other end, I turned and saw the car in question stopped at a streetlight. I hailed a cab and instructed the driver to follow the vehicle. I had him keep a fair distance and watched on as the car was parked in a crowded parking lot. I witnessed a poofy-haired blonde emerge from the vehicle. I could make her out well under the beaming lights of the parking lot. She was scantily clad in a tight black skirt with fishnet stockings and fire engine red high heels. 
She was wearing a snug wife-beater tank top that was tied in the front. And she was decked out with an array of necklaces and bracelets. I watched as she tossed the car keys in a nearby garbage can and headed back toward the main section of the red light district. I paid the cabbie and followed her on foot to an active street for streetwalkers. She kept in the shadows away from the other hookers and waited patiently for someone to drive up and solicit her, which eventually somebody did. I watched as she talked to the driver for a moment before entering the vehicle. I started jogging behind it as it drove off. I was about to hail a cab, but fortunately the car pulled into an alley not far away. When I finally reached it, I stepped inside the alley and took cover behind a trash can. I watched as the car began to rock back and forth, not in a sexual manner, but a violent one. I could hear the man let out a quick yell of anguish before all went silent. It was about five minutes later when the woman emerged from the vehicle with the man's body over her shoulder. I lifted my camera up and took one quick picture as she tossed the body into the dumpster. Her head spun around toward me as if she heard the click of the camera, but the camera was practically silent so there was no way she could have heard that. I thought. I was spotted. I stood up and had the option of confronting the assailant or fleeing. I don't intimidate easily, but with the way this woman was tossing around bodies like they were raggedy and dolls, I opted to flee. I expected to hear the clickety-clack of the prostitute's heels as she gave chase, but instead I heard a loud whoosh sound and felt a breeze blow past me. In an instant, the hooker was standing in front of me. Her eyes were burning red and she was snarling, revealing sharp, pointed fangs that were stained with fresh blood. Before I could move, she wrapped her long, nailed hand around my throat and lifted me up in the air like I was a toy. She then let out a deep, hollow growl. I knew I was about to die. There was no way out of this. My fate was in her hands. Literally. After a few seconds, she pulled me in so that my face was close to hers. I could smell the metallic, salty scent of blood on her breath. My heart was thudding like a drum within my chest. I could actually hear it. I thought there was a fairly good chance that I might die from a heart attack before this vampire woman could kill me. After a few seconds, she lowered me all the way to the ground and let me go. I stood motionless. I was not going to do anything without her permission. Her instructions to me were clear. Never tell anyone what you saw, and never come to the red light district again. I tried to speak to confirm that I understood, but no words were coming out of my mouth, so I just nodded my head vigorously. I guess she found that amusing as she smiled before puckering up and giving me a hard kiss on the mouth. She then gave me a parting grin. And with that, the mysterious vampire woman stepped out of the alley and back under the gloomy glow of the red light district.
The Cube. In my free time, I love to fish. I have the perfect quiet fishing spot. It's quite secluded, so I always have it to my own, and it's only about 20 minutes from my house. To get to my fishing hole, I have to travel down multiple twisty gravel roads, and then eventually I turn off onto a trail that goes several miles into the woods. At the end of the trail is a clearing. The lake is about a five-minute walk from there. Over the weekend, when I turned onto the trail, I heard what I initially thought was someone setting off firecrackers up ahead of me. I started getting worried that maybe someone else had discovered my prime fishing location. When I reached the clearing, I was shocked at what I discovered. There were two dark SUV-type vehicles parked in the clearing. They were facing each other, but there was about 20 feet in between them. The driver's side door on each vehicle was ajar. I immediately noticed the blood, and the dead bodies. On one side, near one of the vehicles, there were two men dressed in black suits and wearing black sunglasses. On the other side, near the other vehicle, was a man in khaki pants and a shirt and tie. I could see some kind of white lab coat sitting in the driver's seat of the vehicle that apparently belonged to him. I approached cautiously and called out to see if anyone else was in earshot. I got no response, so I inspected things more closely. All three men were sprawled out on the ground and had guns in their hands. Clearly, they had an old-fashioned shootout. One of the men in black had been shot in the head, the other in the heart. The man in the shirt and tie had multiple shots to his abdomen and chest. In between the bodies was a briefcase. I deducted that this briefcase was the likely source of friction between the two parties. Obviously, this was some kind of exchange gone bad. The fact that they decided to come all the way out here in the middle of nowhere to make the exchange told me that this was either something illegal, top secret, or both. Whatever the situation was between these men, my hunch was that the briefcase I was staring at was stuffed with cash, probably untraceable cash, and all three of these men were dead. If I took the briefcase, who would know? I grabbed the briefcase, got back into my car, and raced home. When I got home, I laid the briefcase out on the kitchen table. Fortunately, there was no locking mechanism. I unlatched it and slowly opened up the briefcase. There was no cash inside, as I had hoped. The only thing inside was a steel cube. The briefcase was clearly made for the cube, as there was a plush compartment in the middle of the case that the cube fit in perfectly. I removed the cube and inspected it. I'm not sure if I was more disappointed or curious. What was so important about this little metallic cube that could fit in the palm of my hand? Was this really what those men killed each other over? I looked at it closer. It didn't look like anything special. It was just a steel cube. It was very light, and when I put it next to my ear and shook it, I could hear something rattling around inside, kind of like BBs. 
I set the cube down on the table and began considering my next move. If this were worth something, I would have no idea who to sell it to, and since it was of no value to me, I thought my best move would be to get rid of it. Maybe throw it in the woods somewhere or just take it to the garbage dump. As I considered my options, the cube started to shake and jump, kind of like a Mexican jumping bean. Then it began to emit white light from its edges. I stepped away from the cube and started to panic, wondering what I should do. This thing could be a bomb for all I knew. As the light grew brighter, steam began to hiss out of the cube at a ferocious pace. Within a few seconds, the entire room was fogged over. I was about to run out of the house in fear that I may be breathing in some kind of toxic gas when the fog quickly dissipated inward, forming a humanoid shape. This was followed by a burst of magnificent light. There was a creature standing before me. I think I screamed when I saw it. The creature was about four feet tall. It had a large head and sideways oval eyes that were blazing red. Its skin appeared smooth and olive green. Its arms were short and muscular. Its mouth was enormous and lined with long, needle-like teeth. It stared at me for a few seconds before its monstrous mouth opened and it let out the most hideous roar. I ran toward the door, but it moved like a flash and blocked my path. It snarled as it approached me, moving me back into a corner. I collapsed and curled up into a fetal position as I whimpered and begged for my life. The creature's bright red eyes slowly darkened until they were black, and it closed its intimidating mouth. It was almost as though it knew that I was just an innocent bystander who was not associated with the people I obtained the cube from. It stepped back away from me and began gazing around at its surroundings. I began to stand up and its eyes turned back into fiery red ovals of rage, and once again it revealed its needle teeth and roared. I dropped back down to the floor and curled up in the corner. Once again... The monster's eyes shifted back to black, and it calmed down. Apparently it was fine with me as long as I stayed curled up in the corner, so that's exactly what I did. I watched on as the creature began to ransack my house. It ripped apart my refrigerator, oven, television, computer, and just about every other electronic component I had. The guts of my electronics were scattered all about the room. At first, I thought the creature was just raging, but then I realized there was a method to the monster's madness, and it began assembling pieces of the devices together. It was so fast, it moved in a blur, and in less than an hour, a small craft of some sort sat in the middle of my house. It was saucer-shaped and about five feet across. It was crudely assembled with various red, blue, and yellow wires zigzagging over the exterior of the craft. I watched on as the creature flipped a few switches on the side of the object, and the craft began to hum and levitate. The creature then turned back to me and let out another hideous roar before it crawled into the vehicle. The vehicle shot upwards, ripping my roof to shreds. 
It then lit up like a laser beam and disappeared into the night. I stayed in the corner for another half hour before I moved. I didn't want to risk the creature coming back and displaying its disapproval again. I looked around my pillaged house. It was a disaster. But all in all, I was just glad that the monster allowed me to live to fish another day. The Little Girl I woke up to the sound of crying, but I was alone in the house. I grabbed my cell phone and checked the time. It was 3 o'clock a.m. The crying continued. It was distant. It sounded like it was coming from a room at the far end of the hall. The house had no electricity, so I activated the flashlight on my cell phone, which illuminated the room I was in. This was the biggest room of the second floor, and the only one with a bed. I honestly thought I would be able to lie down and just sleep until 6 o'clock in the morning, and I might have been able to if it weren't for the crying. It was clearly a child, a little girl. I held the light in front of me as I exited the room and began walking down the endless hallway. I passed countless rooms. There were pictures on the wall between each room. They were all dusty and covered in cobwebs to the point where I couldn't make out what the pictures were of. Except for the portraits. There were multiple portraits of a suited man standing and holding the hand of a little girl in an Easter dress. The man had black hair, dark eyes, and a well-groomed mustache. The little girl had blonde hair tied in pigtails. Both the man and the child held expressions of sadness. The peculiar thing was that every portrait of them was exactly the same except for their attire. The man's suit was a different color in each portrait, as was the little girl's dress. Otherwise, the portraits were identical. They were also clean. No dust, no cobwebs, not a speck of dirt. I was getting close to the end of the hallway and could tell that the child's crying was emanating from the last door on the right. I could see that the door was already open, but it may as well have been closed as the room was pitch black. The second I stepped from the hallway into the room, the child's crying stopped and fell silent. As I walked deeper into the room and scanned around using my light, I could make out that the room was small and void of any furniture. There was a window on the far wall, the wall next to that had a closet. If there was a child in this room, that's where they had to be. I didn't want to freak myself out any more than I already was, so I hurried to the closet door and quickly opened it. I wasn't surprised that it was empty. 
I knew I was alone. I had walked through every room in the huge, decrepit old house as soon as I arrived. There wasn't a soul in sight, and the floors were worn and rickety. They creaked like a scream with every step. There was no hiding in this house. I was definitely alone. This fact sent shivers down my spine as I walked back down the hallway. As I walked, I quickly shone my cell phone flashlight into each room I passed. They were all empty of possessions and people. I stopped when I shined my light into the bathroom. There was an old-fashioned high-tank pull-chain toilet next to a freestanding bathtub. I knew the house had no running water, but my bladder didn't care about that. I walked to the toilet and relieved myself. As I turned around, I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror on the wall. In the reflection, I saw the little girl from the portrait. She was standing directly behind me. I screamed and jumped. My cell phone slipped from my hand and slid across the floor. The flashlight on the phone went dead and I found myself enveloped by darkness. I dropped to my hands and knees and started feeling around the floor for my cell phone. I was blind without the light. My hands were sliding all over the cold, gritty floor. I felt multiple insect carcasses and dust bunnies. Finally, my fingertips bumped the edge of my phone, pushing it a few feet, but at least I knew approximately where it was. I reached out and placed my hand on my phone. But instead of feeling the hard surface of the phone, I felt the cold, clammy hand of a child. I stumbled to my feet and ran. The house was so dark, but fortunately there was enough moonlight shining through the cracked windows for me to find my way to the giant, winding staircase that would take me to the main floor of the house. As I started racing down the stairs, I could hear the dainty steps running behind me along with the little girl's voice saying, Play with me. The footsteps behind me were quickening. The little girl was closing in on me as I reached the bottom of the stairs and darted to the front door. I could feel the little girl's dead hand tugging on the back of my shirt as I turned the doorknob and ran from the house. I ran through the overgrown yard to the street where the fraternity members were waiting for me. They were laughing and cheering me on. I was surprised at their celebratory mood. I expected them to be disappointed with me. The Pledge Master put his arm around me and congratulated me for officially being accepted into the Fraternal Brotherhood. I was confused, but I failed the initiation. I didn't stay in the house until 6am like I was supposed to. I, I didn't make it. He chuckled and said, <laughs> Nobody ever makes it. That house is haunted as hell. The Worm My name is G. Hebert, 
I'm a French scientist that is part of an Antarctic research group. There are 12 of us based in an isolated research facility. I just finished murdering everybody in the group. Two days ago, we discovered several frozen prehistoric worms that were concluded to be at least 200,000 years old. The worms were approximately 18 inches in length, but rather thin. We defrosted the worms and one of them woke up. It is a carnivorous worm and it immediately began moving and feeding. When our entomologist, Francois Gaston, who had been studying the worm, did not show for dinner, I checked in on him. When I arrived at his lab, he and the worm were missing. I could hear water running in the restroom a few doors down from his lab, so I followed the sound. When I stepped into the restroom, I immediately noticed the running bath and I feared it may be ready to overflow. When I hurried to turn the water off, I discovered Francois. He was fully clothed but submerged in the tub. He had drowned. The worm was swimming freely in the water. I was about to pull the alarm to alert the others of the unfortunate incident when the worm stopped swimming and lifted its bulbous head out of the water as if it were looking at me. It then coiled up similar to that of a snake and somehow sprung out of the water and landed on my face. I panicked and tried to push the worm off of me, but it was too fast and wiggled across my face and into my ear. I could feel it squirming around inside my ear canal and then was doubled over in pain as I could feel it chewing through my skin and wriggling deeper into my head. All at once, the movement and pain stopped. Somehow the worm had connected with me. It was communicating with me. Dictating to me. It was my master, and I was its slave. It needed water. That's why Francois was dead in the tub. The worm had gained control of him and made him run water and lie down in it. The worm then exited his body into the water, but quickly realized this body of water was far too small. It needed a river, or a lake, or an ocean. When the worm leaves the host's body, the host dies. That is why Francois is dead. This will be my fate as well, once I find a sufficient body of water. Although I still have full function over my body and am well aware of what is happening, I do not resist. I'm not sure why, but obviously the worm has gained control of my brain. Since I am in the middle of the Antarctic, with no feasible way of reaching a body of water on my own, the worm will have to wait longer than it would like. We are not scheduled to leave the facility for another six months. That time frame is not acceptable to the worm, but it knows through the knowledge in my brain that if an emergency were to occur, a rescue team would be dispatched. If the weather doesn't become unstable, they could arrive in less than two days. It's important that nobody know of the worm's existence. 
Since my entire research group was aware of the worm, they had to be eliminated. I poisoned their food and they have all expired. Their deaths will be used as the emergency that will trigger the rescue. I destroyed all of the files that acknowledge the existence of the worm. As of now, I'm the only one who knows about it. When the rescue team arrives, I'll report that my group died from food poisoning. I'll also let on that I am suffering from the same poisoning and that I need to go to a hospital immediately. They'll take me to one of the larger research bases in Antarctica, which just so happens to be near an ocean. Once I arrive, I'll emerge myself into the ocean, and the worm will be free. A little fun. When I was a freshman in high school, I had the biggest crush on the captain of the varsity football team. His name was Trent. He had dreamy blue eyes and wavy brown hair. Of course, you didn't even know I existed. I was a nerd. I always had my nose stuck in a book. I wore thick glasses and was overweight. I wasn't what most would refer to as attractive. I had no friends. Both girls and boys alike made fun of me on a regular basis. I just ignored them, but it always bothered me. One day, while I was eating lunch, all by myself as usual, I was surprised when I heard a voice behind me say, Hi there. I turned around and it was Trent. He was showing off his sparkling teeth with a cheerful smile. I was so excited that he was acknowledging me. I opened my mouth to respond to him, but no words came out. I was literally speechless. He held his sensual smile when he said, Wanna have a little fun tonight? I must have looked so stupid sitting there in shock with my mouth agape. Trent just asked me out on a date. I wanted to say yes. I had to say yes. But the word came out as a groan. So I just nodded my head goofily. He touched my cheek and winked at me when he said, I'll pick you up at seven. I watched him as he walked back to a table with four of his football buddies. I was expecting them all to let out loud laughs, giving away that they just pulled a joke on me. But they didn't. Could this really be legit? I got into my nicest dress, combed my hair, and waited on my front porch. Honestly, I wasn't expecting him to show, but he arrived promptly at 7. I got into his car and lost myself in his gorgeous eyes when he turned and said, Ready for a little fun? I was proud of myself when I was finally able to utter some actual words. Yes, I am. He took me to a nearby state park. The parking lot was empty because it was after dark and the park closes at dusk. 
I mentioned this to him, and he just laughed and said something about rules being made to be broken. He then asked if I'd like to take a moonlight stroll with him. I nodded eagerly. He got out of the car, hurried around to my door and opened it for me. I wasn't sure if I was shaking because I was cold or because I was nervous, but Trent noticed. Ever the gentleman, he took his letterman jacket off and wrapped it around my shoulders. I nearly swooned when he put his arm around me and directed me toward a path. As we walked down the path, I don't remember if we talked or not. I was in a love daze. After a few minutes, we approached a picnic shelter that had an exterior fireplace. The fire was blazing and I started hearing hooting and hollering that sent shivers down my spine. His four football buddies were at the picnic shelter. They were drinking beer and goofing around. They were obviously intoxicated. Trent ushered me toward the picnic area, but I stopped in my tracks and spoke up. I thought you said you wanted to have a little fun. I do. I shook my head. I apologize, but hanging out with a bunch of your inebriated buddies doesn't sound like fun to me. Oh, that's not the fun part. I could feel my nose crinkling up in confusion. No? Then what is the fun part? His smile transformed into a mischievous grin. The gangbang. I took a few steps back. You guys are going to rape me? Trent hurried forward and grabbed me by the upper arm. Only if you make us. My advice is to lay back, relax, and enjoy it. My body drooped in disappointment. I was hoping you would be different. He arrogantly shrugged. Sorry to disappoint you. He thought for a few seconds and then recanted. On second thought, no. Actually, I'm not sorry. He pointed to a nearby picnic table. Now lay down and make this easy. I walked to the picnic table he had pointed to and sat down on it. I watched as all five boys began unfastening their pants. I guess deep down I was hoping they wouldn't go through with it, or at the very least would show some reluctance, but they didn't. Trent stepped up to me, dropped his pants, and attempted to shove me down onto the picnic table. I held up my hand and snapped my fingers. Trent's head exploded. His stupid buddies were frozen in terror for a few seconds, and then frantically began refastening their pants so that they could run away like cowards. With the wave of my hand, the four boys were suspended in air. Their screams filled the cool, crisp night, but there was nobody there to hear them. I elevated them well above the tree line, and then let them go. One by one, they splat on the ground like oversized water balloons. I flew home, disappointed. I was really hoping for a fun night. But then it dawned on me. Actually, that was pretty fun. Thank you.
The Path In the mountains of the Pacific Northwest, there is a path. The path is approximately five feet across and begins in the center of an extremely dense forest. The path consists of smooth, soft, light-colored soil that some have described as being very sand-like. The path is completely void of any twigs, stones, weeds, vegetation, or growth of any kind. No videos or photos of the path exist, for cameras do not function when pointed at the path. Those who have attempted to photograph the path claim that their pictures only show a dark spot. Satellite images over the path's location display only a large black smudge. Most people who have traveled down the path have never returned. The following are the stories from the only four people in the world known to have returned after walking down the path. The Botanist I'm a botanist. In case you don't know what that means, I'm a scientist who studies plants. And for me, plants aren't just a profession, they're a passion. So often when I go on vacation, I go to places that will satisfy said passion. This particular getaway was in the deep, mountainous woods of the Pacific Northwest. I had been hiking for longer than I meant to and found myself in a lush portion of the forest. I had lost track of time due to my excitement of discovering several rare breeds of plants. That's when I came upon the path. Immediately I found myself dumbfounded as to how such a path could exist in the middle of rough terrain. This path didn't belong here. This wasn't an animal trail or anything like that. It was a legitimate path. It was about five feet wide and the dirt was so fine that it gave the appearance of sand. I bent down, picked up a handful of the mysterious dirt, and let it sift through my fingers. While it was very sand-like, it wasn't coarse like sand. It was smooth, gentle, and the path was clean of any form of debris. It wasn't natural. I was reluctant to travel down it, but the scientist in me had to see where it led. I began down the unusual path and was struck by how smooth the bordering forest was against the edges of the path. It was as though the forest had been sliced through to produce the path. It created a wall on each side of the path which grew increasingly dense the further I traveled. The path had many twists and turns to it which made it impossible to see too far ahead. Finally I reached a straight stretch, only the path didn't disappear into the distance. It seemed to stop at a large black wall. I stepped toward the wall and it wasn't until I was approximately five feet away from it that I realized it wasn't a solid wall. It was more like a dark, billowy boundary of fog. The fog was subtly churning but never moved beyond its border. As thick and foreboding as it was, I decided to step into the fog, assuming it would clear quickly and I could continue my journey. As I stepped into it, I felt an extremely delicate twinge of static electricity cascade over my body. And the fog was so thick 
It was much like when an airplane is enveloped within clouds. I took about three steps forward and then stopped in my tracks, overwhelmed by a feeling that I was no longer alone. The feeling was so strong that I actually called out to whatever was there. And my call was answered, but not in the form of an audible response, but by physical touch. It felt like thousands of tiny fingertips just barely brushing my arms. I panicked and turned to run out of the fog bank and back onto the path, but the fog was not lifting. I had only stepped a few feet into it, but found myself running for what seemed like hours. I had no way of seeing where I was going, but kept changing my direction, hoping to find my way back to the path. Suddenly, I felt like I was pushed in the back and fell forward to my hands and knees. When I lifted my head, I was back on the path with the wall of fog behind me. I hurried down the path to its starting point. When I stepped off of the path and back onto the forest's floor, I felt as though a vast amount of weight had been lifted from my shoulders. The Survivalist My name is Scott. My buddy Christopher and I are amateur survivalists. Once a year, we spend a full week in a random area with minimal equipment and live off of the land. This time, we were in the Pacific Northwest. It was day one, and we were still getting a lay of the land when we happened upon the path. My first impression was that the path seemed out of place. It looked like a sandy path, like something one might find in the Caribbean. Our curiosity was piqued enough to see where it went. The first thing that struck me was the way it felt under my feet. Although it looked like sand, we didn't sink down into it as one might expect to on a sandy beach. It felt more like there was a thin, plush surface covering a more solid base. Then we reached the fog. It wasn't chaotic like a natural fog bank. It seemed contained. It was as if the fog had been released into a giant, transparent enclosure that did not allow it to expand beyond a certain point. I actually stuck my hand into the fog, thinking for a moment that it might not be penetrable. But it was. My hand slipped into the fog and I could feel energy within. It was so bizarre. I quickly withdrew my hand and began rubbing it. I looked over at Christopher, who was standing in wondrous awe at the peculiar sight before us. His eyes were wide with excitement as he said, Wow. Christopher is an adrenaline junkie who is always up for a new adventure, so I wasn't surprised when he stepped into the fog without hesitation. I opened my mouth to caution him against this move, but he was gone. I could hear him talking. His voice was filled with excitement like a child standing within an amusement park for the first time. However, I couldn't understand what he was saying. Although he had only stepped into the fog a few seconds ago, his voice was distant as though he were hundreds of feet away. His voice also had a strange reverberation to it. Then I heard him scream, and it wasn't a scream of exhilaration. It was a scream of terror. I listened on as his scream became increasingly distant as though something were whisking him away. Eventually, his scream trailed off and disappeared. 
he was never seen again. The Cryptozoologist Cryptozoology is the study of hidden or unknown creatures. Some more notable animals in the cryptozoology world are the Loch Ness Monster, El Chupacabra, and Sasquatch, also known as Bigfoot. When I had heard the legend of the path and how many had gone missing while traveling down it, I suspected that there may be a cryptozoological explanation for this. Most believe the path to be nothing more than a myth. After all, many had set out to experience the odd path, but were never able to find it. But I found it. It was exactly as had been described, a sand-like path that literally emerged from nowhere. I walked down the path, keeping an ear out for any unusual sounds that may be that of an unknown creature, but the path was practically silent with the exception of a delicate hum in the distance. The hum led to a monolith of fog. I had no intention of fully entering the fog. This seemed to be the point where most people got lost. Instead, my plan was to partially enter the fog and see what happened. I turned sideways and stepped exactly halfway into the mysterious vapor. The fog had such a distinct border that I was able to achieve this. Half of my body was within the fog, half was still out on the clear path. If I closed my right eye and kept my left eye open, I was on the path. If I closed my left eye and opened my right eye, I could see nothing but fog. There was a definite difference in the feeling between each side of my body. My side that was still on the path felt normal. My side within the fog felt heavy and staticky. I also had a strong urge to step fully into the fog. That's when I heard the whisper. The whisper came from within the fog. Someone was whispering into my right ear. The voice said, Go back. And then I felt like I was moving against my will, like I was being pulled into the fog. It was a gravitational feeling of falling extremely slowly, but while standing upright. Then I felt a hand on my shoulder trying to push me back against that gravitational pull, and the whisper repeated, Go back. I heeded the warning and stepped out of the fog, back onto the path, and I ran away until I reached the shelter of the natural forest. I concluded that whatever is down that path was not of a cryptozoological nature, but rather an interdimensional one. The Physicist I'm a physicist, and I'm a believer in the possibility of other dimensions. When I began to hear the stories of the path, and that some were suggesting that it led to another dimension, I wanted to test that theory. I arrived at the entrance of the path with my two assistants. I tied a rope around my waist and had my two assistants hold the end of the rope. We kept that rope taut, so that if I experienced any trouble, I would tug on the rope and they could pull me back to safety. The assistants said that within five minutes of me walking down the path and moving out of their sight, they felt a series of chaotic jerks and tugs on the rope. They said they tried to pull me back, but they felt as though they were in a tug-of-war match with a monster. Eventually, the rope gave way and lost its weight. They pulled the rope back to them. The end of the rope appeared as if it had been chewed apart. My own experience does not coincide with theirs. 
I walked down the path and encountered a wall of shadowy mist. Without fear, and of pure sound mind and body, I entered the mist and trekked forward at a deliberate pace, even though my visibility was zero due to the thickness of the mist. I could hear the whisper of a voice in front of me, and although I could not make out the words that were being used, I could feel that it was beckoning me forward. That's when I noticed that I was no longer walking, yet I was still moving, as if being pulled by an unforeseen force. The force pulled me through to the other side of the fog wall. I found myself before a large spinning vortex portal. It was black in the center with whirling white edges. I had no control as I was plummeted forward into the portal. I felt myself falling as if I had been shoved over a cliff, but then the fall gradually slowed and I was floating. It was similar to that of jumping into the ocean, but I wasn't underwater. I was in space, surrounded by endless stars and galaxies. I barely had the chance to take in the miraculous sight before I found myself plummeting straight down. I could see the light below me as I zoomed toward a surface. As the surface rushed toward me, I mercifully slowed and found myself suspended above a large, futuristic-looking city that was bustling with flying vehicles. I was startled by a disembodied voice coming from above me. The voice was feminine and distinct. You aren't supposed to be here. I felt a hand latch around my wrist and was whisked away into a murky room. At the end of the room was a white elevator. As I floated toward the elevator, the doors opened and I entered. I noticed one lonely button by the elevator doors. Immediately upon pressing the button, everything around me fell dark. I woke up on the path in front of the wall of mist. I felt drained of all my energy. I was barely able to stand and stumble down the path back to my companions. We hope you enjoyed the show. We're dying for you to come back for more. <laughs> Visit ManiacOnTheLoose.com Sign up for our newsletter and I'll give you some free stuff. We'll see you soon. Very soon. Hey everyone. If you're enjoying the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories podcast, we hope you'll support the show. The show is a lot of work, and your support is greatly appreciated. There are several ways you can support the show. Just go to ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash support. That's ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash support. Thank you so much.